You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning and welcome to worship this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now, before we move into the exposition of this text for today, which is the text that God in his providence has given us uh, this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke, before we uh, move into this, I want to briefly mention um, the last two comments and components uh, from last month's corporate memory verse. Okay, so we're going to be um, finishing up talking through last month's corporate memory verse for just a minute. And uh, I haven't stood in this pulpit for the past three weeks, first due to uh, Hurricane Ida, which I'd like to say, uh, praise God, and I'm so proud of, of our church for the way that you all have served one another during this time. And uh, it's been an incredibly difficult season for many. And so good job for serving each other, each other well. Second, I haven't been in the pulpit due to traveling for my father-in-law's funeral, which I do want to share about at some point and even share some lessons that I've learned as I've prop, uh, processed his passing. But all that to say, I was unable to finish our brief teaching through Ephesians 4, which is where last month's corporate memory verse came from. And uh, we really did a survey, if you remember, from Ephesians through Ephesians chapters 1 through 4, okay? Uh, And I really do encourage you to go back and to listen to this. If you weren't here, listen to the beginning of each sermon from the month of August, and uh, this is where I, that's where I taught this. So what I want you to do is keep your finger in Luke, Luke 14, where you should have turned already, and, um, and flip to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 4, okay? You're just going to go a little bit right, and, and we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 for a few minutes here. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one in a a basket in the row underneath you or the row in front of you because you're going to need it the whole time. And so um, let's recite this, particularly verses 11 through 12, um, which which were the verses uh, that we covered, okay? So let's recite this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for the building up, good job, one more time, and he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, after teaching you the, the content, the progression, and even the main point of Ephesians, really chapters 1 through 4, uh, but particularly chapters 1 through 3, if you remember the progression of that and the content of that and the main point of that. And then we saw the transition into chapter 4 of Ephesians. And uh, we mentioned that this is Paul's, listen now, plan and pattern for the church. Okay, in chapters 1 through 3, he tells us who we are in Christ, what has been done for us in Christ, how great a blessing we've received in Christ, what God has done for us in salvation. He tells us all that in chapters 1 through 3. And then as we move into chapter 4, he moves into this plan and this pattern for the church. That is to say, what does God desire for his church? How has he designed for it to live? And that's what he tells us in chapter 4, that he's already told them who they are in Christ. If you want to know who you are in Christ, read Ephesians 1 through 3. If you want to know what's been done for you in Christ, read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. If you want to know how great and glorious God is for saving you, read Ephesians 1 through 3. And then if you want to know how you're to function as a Christian and live inside the local body, what's it supposed to look like? What does God desire? How is it designed to function? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 4. He's already told them who they are and what has happened to them through the gospel. And now Paul is telling them how they should function. So we said we could summarize chapter 4 in these terms. Group, gifts, growth, gain, and goal. And today I want to instruct us in the last two, which are the gain and the goal. Now, look at the verses with me, okay? When we come to see these headings by way of what Paul has said thus far. In verses 1 through 6, look at Ephesians chapter 4. In verses 1 through 6, here's what Paul's speaking about. He's speaking about unity in the church. That's the group. That's the group. Unity. In the church, and, and, and he's not only says that this church, listen, should be unified, but he tells the church how it should be unified, how it can accomplish unity. The things that promote unity, things like humility, right? So this church now, with who they are in Christ, what they've received in Christ, this glorious salvation they've received, what God has done for them in Christ, now here's how you are to function. First, you are to be unified, and this is how you can accomplish that. Now, after telling them in, that first, in those first six verses how they are all the same, it's if I was, as, as if I was looking at you and saying, you are, uh, those of you who are in Christ, you are all the same. You have received the, the salvation that, that God has given through Christ. But then he moves into verses 7 through 11, and Paul tells them how they are all different. That's the gifts. Paul speaks of the gifts. 
And he divides these gifts, listen now, into two categories. He divides the gifts that are given to the church into two categories. First, the gifts in the church, and second, the gifts to the church. The gifts in the church, those are given to every believer at the point of your salvation. God aims to use you to serve the body. And he has given you gifts. That's where, and some people ask, well, how do I know what my gifts are? Well, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans 12, and you can understand what some of these gifts are. Don't do that now. And listen, here's what you do. You start serving the body. Just start serving the body. Just start helping in any way that you can. You know what? It's, it's not a mystical experience. You just start serving anywhere you can. And guess what? You really desire to do certain things. You have giftings to do certain things. When you do certain things, people tell you, you're really helpful at this, right? It doesn't take a lot lot of work to figure that out. God's obviously gifted you in that way, to serve his body. So there's gifts in the church now, and that's to serve one another. Then the latter is the, the spiritual leaders. Those are the gifts to the church, okay? Those are the gifts to the church, meaning... God gives, he says in Ephesians 4, these apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He gives a gift to the church, which are the spiritual leaders. So, which leads us to then the growth in verse 12. Paul says that the result of the spiritual leaders teaching the word of God will be that the body is equipped by the word of God for ministry, for ministry. So the leaders teach, the church grows and does the ministry, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Here's what you grow in, listen, holiness. You grow in knowledge. You grow in love. You grow in an understanding of what the word says. You grow, you're equipped. And then you do the work of ministry. Right? So, now briefly, we move into the last two, which is what I wanted to finish today, which is at the end of verse 12, we see the gain. It says, for the building up of the body of Christ. So understand this. This is the progression of Ephesians 1 through 4, okay? Who you are in Christ what God has done for you in Christ, the great blessing you have received in salvation if you are in Christ, the praise that goes to God for what he has done for you in Christ. And these people who are in Christ first should be unified. And here's how they should be unified. Then, in addition to this group being unified, they must understand that you must understand that you all are different. There's different gifts that God has given to the body and given to the body. And when these teachers equip the saints with the word of God, they become holy, grow in their knowledge, they serve one another, serve the body, and as they serve, the body is strengthened. It grows. This is how we are to function. It gains, is the term I'm using. As the saints do the work of the ministry, the body is then built up. It experiences gains. So, 
The spiritual leaders teach the believers the word. The believers of the church are busy doing the work of ministry and the body's built up. This too can be divided, listen, into two main categories. Two categories for gain. First, internal. Second, external. First, internal. Second, external. How does the church gain? How is it strengthened when all this works right? Well, first, let's deal with the internal. That's to say this. As the believers do the work of ministry in the church, the body itself becomes stronger. Stronger. This body will be strong when you all are serving one another, doing the work of ministry. Right? It gains, like a teenage boy gains muscle and height. Right? When he exercises and eats right. Or, or listen, it's like a building that's built up, like a building that you're building. As the construction workers engage in the building process of a building, right? They erect a two by four to give it structure. They add on a frame and, and continue to add on to frame it for support and expansion. They insulate it to keep it warm and to deafen the noise from the outside. They put on walls and brick and doors to protect from the outside conditions. Listen. As this is built upon the strong foundation with a firm and steady and true cornerstone, this building grows up strong. And that's the idea here. This term built up, listen, it's a compound word in the Greek. And you know what it denotes? A building or an edification. It, 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 listen, it is used literally and figuratively. And here's what it expresses. The building already exists. It expresses a strengthening of the building. It's, listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, referring to the church, Paul says this, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's what? Building. That's the idea here. So, of course, the foundation of this building is, listen, the foundation is the writing of the apostles, the word of God. And the cornerstone is who? Who? Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so when the saints are doing the work of ministry, the, the body, the house of God, the church is strengthened. Okay? And what can this mean? Well, you say, well, what do you mean by that? How do when we serve one another, we're, the body's strengthened? Well, listen, as you love one another, as you serve one another, maybe people are encouraged you experience God's grace as you serve one another, as you forgive one another, as you take care of one another. Listen, maybe as you rebuke one another, people are sanctified. They become holy. They say, yeah, yeah, you're right. I can't live like that. That's not what the word says, right? This can mean that you teach and admonish one another in Bible study, discipleship, and then you grow in an understanding and knowledge of the word. See how the, the body would be strengthened like that? Or it could mean that you serve our families by consistently, diligently, sacrificially serving in our classroom. When you, when you serve in the children's ministry on Sunday morning, you know what you're serving? You're serving a family. You're not just filling in in a role. We don't have like roles. You're like, you want to make the team? Please, we really need you. You're supposed to be using your gifts for the service of the body. You're serving families and strengthening their families by teaching their kids truth. 
And the body's strengthened because the family's strengthened. And the family becomes all that God plans for it to be. And so this is how the body is strengthened when we do the work of ministry. And all of this, again, is made clear at the end of the section. Look at your section again. Look at verse 16. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, what does it do? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that's the internal work. There's also an external work. And to put it simply, as the teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry, ministry not only serving each other, but ministry to the lost. You're equipped to reach the lost. So the body grows and builds itself up and strengthens internally, and then it grows and builds itself up and expands and strengthens from your work externally, outside the church, by evangelizing the lost. And this is how the body grows, right? So you gotta be equipped for the work of the ministry by the teachers as one group with your gifts so that you can go out, share your faith, people come to Christ, come into the church, and the body grows. It's built up. So evangelism, saints, you're, you should be out proclaiming the gospel to the lost world, to the neighbors, to, your na- to the nations. And when the lost believe the gospel and are saved, they're added to the church, the global church and the local church. Now to show you a picture of this, there couldn't be any more obvious of a passage to look at than, I don't know if you would name it if I, if I asked you, Acts chapter 2. Good job. Just kidding. I could have chosen a lot of passages. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Look at this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they were a group. They were a group. They were unified, right? They were built on the, the, on the foundation of the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, right? There was unity to the breaking of the bread and to prayers. They, they were t- being taught by the teachers who were the gift to the church to teach them the word of God. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The apostles were gifted in that particular way which, which is not normative for the Christian because they were to prove their teaching was true. Now we have the word of God in written form, right? So they're doing this work of the ministry, they're teaching And all who believed were together. Look at this unity. They had all things in common. They were one, but yet they were doing the work of ministry. They were selling their possessions, their belongings. They were distributing the proceeds to to all as any had need. Day by day, they were attending the temple together. They were breaking bread in their homes. I mean, this is group, gifts, growth, you know, laid out for us. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Now look at this. And the Lord did what? He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The body's being built up. So we see the gains. As the spiritual leaders teach the church the word of God, then as the church does the work of ministry both inside and outside the church, the body gains. It builds up. Now let's finish this in verses 13 through 15. We see the goal. The goal. 
That is to say this. Well, let me read the verses. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by crafting, uh, cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together. Well, I'm moving into the next verse, so we'll stop there. Verse 15. We already read 16. This is the goal. Here's the, here's the question. After all this, if we, were to just, if we were to do all that Paul's speaking about in this section, Okay, If we were to be faithful in all of these areas that Paul is speaking about in this particular section, what what are we after? What do we want to become? What's the point? What's the goal? What's the ultimate result? What are we aiming for? What are we hoping for? What are we striving to become? Right? If we function in all the ways he describes, what are we going after? And we can summarize this simply as this. Maturity. Maturity. You function in the way that Paul describes as an individual and as the body of Christ. And here's what will be accomplished, should be accomplished. Here's the goal. Maturity. God doesn't want you to stay a baby Christian with with inch-deep knowledge and understanding and doctrine. And obedience. He wants you to grow deep and high and wide. And if you walk through verses 13 through 15, you say, well, what does maturity include? Well, it includes things like this. Unity of faith. Unity of knowledge. Where we're all on the same plane in knowledge. Trying to bring each other up to each other's levels. Get on my level, right? That's what we're all trying to do. Unity of knowledge. In verses 13 through 15, maturity includes adult-like spirituality. Adult-like spirituality, maturity. It includes Christ-likeness. It includes spiritual discernment. It includes, in these verses 13 through 15, doctrinal clarity. It includes, in these verses, doctrinal discernment. You gotta know when something's wrong. Can't be tossed by the waves of every wind of doctrine. It includes doctrinal consistency, doctrinal steadfastness and firmness. We could do a whole series on verse 14. It says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Maturity includes speaking the truth. That's what, listen, in verses, in in these verses, you know what spiritual maturity includes? Speaking the truth. It also includes love. All of these things define spiritual maturity. So it's aligning our whole lives with the truth of Christ. So here's the goal. This is the goal, maturity. Let me tell you, as God's people follow his plan and his pattern, his desire, his design, and they become mature, listen, listen, and they become holy, right? That's his plan. In fact, this is the very reason which God saved you. You may say, well, what what is the goal of my Christian life? What's the goal? What's the goal of my Christian life? I'll tell you. It's very simple. The answer is that he would make you holy. 
He's gonna take a sinner, regenerate that sinner, and make that sinner like himself, holy, pure, without any error that will be accomplished one day fully in heaven. How do we know? Well, in addition to this text, we'll look, just look at one more, Ephesians 5. Look at this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. Okay, you ready for this? Ready? That, why did he give himself up for the church? That he might sanctify her. That means to make you holy. That's why he gave himself up for you. And how does he do that? Through the cleansing by the washing of the water with the what? Word saves you to make you holy, makes you holy through the word of God. That's how this works. So the goal, friends, is holiness and maturity, okay? So let's close this out. You could take the beginning of, I think, the past five messages that I've preached over the past month and a half, put together a little thing for yourself on the exposition of Ephesians chapters one through four. The blessings the believers received in salvation, the praise to God and his work of salvation, what the believer then, the church, is supposed to do and become, Okay, this is Ephesians chapters one through four, and it really teaches us well. So very well then, let's move into Luke's gospel for the reminder, remainder of our, of our time. Reminder and remainder of our, of our time. Luke chapter 14, okay? And, uh, and um, God's got a lot to teach us. So let's read it. Luke chapter 14, this is of course the last section of Luke 14, which means the next Lord's Day we will start chapter 15. And, uh, and so let's read 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away he who has ears, 
let him hear. Now, let's move. Jesus is making clear what is required for salvation. Jesus here is making clear what is required for true salvation. So that would-be disciples, would-be disciples, understand the cost and then seriously contemplate the cost before deciding to follow him. Would-be disciples need to know the full meaning of lordship up front. They need to consider the cost before they start. They need to consider whether they will be able to continue to pay the cost. The high cost. This is a high cost. That's required to follow him to the end. You ain't going to be perfect, but you're going to follow him until the end. That's got to be the that's got to be the end, to follow him to the end. They need to be not hasty. Listen, listen, not hasty, not naive in knowledge when deciding to follow Christ. If they don't understand the cost and they don't count the cost of making him Lord, making, them, making him their God, here's what's going to happen. At some point in the future, and we've all seen this, the cost becomes too high to continue to pay. People follow him for a while. This cost is really costly. <laughs> right? They, they, and they're not able to finish. They're short-lived, impulsive, unconsidered, unwise, imprudent, and brash spiritual lives come to an end. And then Jesus says here that they become a thing of mockery. So listen, they may decide too hastily without considering all the facts, and they will end up defeated and overpowered by an enemy. Or they might, listen now, not have genuine saving faith. They might look like genuine saving faith on the outside. It looks kind of the same as someone who's born again, but are a false disciple. They have impure faith, and it just takes a little while for that faith to kind of run out. It takes them getting or not getting what they need, what they want. And it kind of runs out. It's short-lived. And in the end, that kind of faith, listen, it doesn't mean anything. It was only a season, a short season of life. But it didn't accomplish anything. It didn't accomplish salvation. It didn't advance the kingdom. Right? In the end, it doesn't matter that one had a spiritual season in their lives. It doesn't count for anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's useless. It just took up time. Didn't produce salvation or sanctification. So let me summarize this. Here's what's being said. Here's the proposition. Jesus is making clear the requirements for true salvation. So would-be disciples count the cost before deciding to follow him, lest they prove to be false disciples and end up in hell. That's exactly what he's saying. Let me say it again. Jesus is making clear the requirements for true salvation. So would-be disciples count the cost before deciding to follow him, lest they prove to be false disciples and end up in hell. It's exactly what he's saying. So I've entitled the message, Stop and Count the Cost 
of true discipleship. This is part five, and we're gonna look at the need to count the cost. This, let me tell you now, this whole thing, listen, it's a lordship issue. First, it's a lordship issue that Jesus is addressing here. Jesus, listen now, listen, stay with me. Jesus has a very clear litmus test of whether or not you believe he is the son of God. He has a very clear litmus test in this. Whether you agree with him about your sin, whether you're trusting him for your only merit before God, your only merit for right standing before God, whether you believe he's God, he's the Christ, he's the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, whether or not you wish to be reconciled to God and glorify God with your life, and therefore whether or not you will experience eternal life. He's got a very clear litmus test. So this is a lordship issue. Secondly, this is a priority issue that Jesus is speaking to. It's not only a lordship issue, which is kind of one and the same, it's also a priority issue. You remember from the previous four sections in chapter 14 of Luke? Each section exposed one main sin that was preventing the Pharisees from experiencing salvation. And now we get to this fifth and final section in Luke 14, and here's what Jesus is making clear. Now, what will be required for true salvation, right? I could preach a whole series on just Luke 14. If, if you want to, like, that would be a great series. Luke 14, four sins and a truth. Right? Four wrongs in one way. That's what's being said here. So back in verse 18, remember this? Look at verse 18 of chapter 14. They all alike began to make what? What? Luke 8, 14, verse 18. Excuses. Excuses. And Jesus here is making clear to his disciples, which is a term in the New Testament, which is synonymous with salvation. If you want to become his disciple, he, listen now, must become the priority of your life. This is a lordship issue. This is a priority issue. And thirdly, really, this is a false conversion issue. The reality of false conversion is one of the most prominent subjects of the entire New Testament. I mean, it's everywhere, right? It's everywhere. And Jesus is adding it to it here and addressing it here, right? So what we've done is we've slowed down. Say this took us five weeks to cover this, yeah. And I think in doing so, we're doing exactly what the passage is called for. So here's what we're gonna do. We've intentionally covered each aspect separately and this leads us to this final part five. We're gonna look at two parables and one application in the text, which all point us to the need to seriously consider the cost. Two parables and one application. These are the final components of this section that we haven't covered that point us to the need, the serious need of considering the costs that Jesus just gave before following him. So let's move into the division of the matter. You can see up on the screen, just put them all up. The previous weeks, here was the progression. We, we really talked about the progression of the whole, where we find ourselves in the progression of the entire Bible in Luke 14. In the whole Bible, where do we find ourselves as the story's progressing? 
We've also talked about where we find ourselves in the progression of Luke's gospel in chapter 14. And then we've made clear the main point of this section. You see, we're getting smaller. We made the main point clear of this particular section. And then we've divided up these verses to help us understand that main point. Where are we in the whole Bible? Where are we in Luke's gospel? What is the main point of this passage? And how does this, these verses support the main point of the passage? We've done all of that. And here's what we came up with. The, we saw in, in terms of looking at this passage in particular. The accompaniment of the crowd, right? That didn't mean much to Jesus that there were a large amount of people following him. The intentionality of Jesus, verse 25b, first one, 25a. Jesus stops the crowd, looks at them in his own initiative. Number three then, the cost of discipleship. Jesus tells them what's required to be his true disciples in verses 26 through 27 and verse 33. He says this, verse 26, loving Christ more than family. He says this in verses 26 and 27, loyalty to Christ, which endures suffering. And he says this in verse 33, living for Christ, detached from possessions. So now we move to the need to count the cost. The need to count the cost. Verses 28 through 32, verses 34 through 35. And here's what I want to tell you. These, Jesus appeals to the need, listen now, Jesus appeals to the need to consider what he's given them as the requirements for following him. And he gives the warnings and the devastating results of not doing so. And it deals with three things, this need, and what he's described. Inability, imprudence, and impurity. Inability, imprudence, and impurity. I'm going to state it more specifically. Here's our three points. Number one, an inability to continue to pay the high cost, verses 28 through 30. Number two, an imprudent and hasty rejection, which will end in defeat. Number three, an impure and therefore useless faith. These are his warnings. These are the realities that he's pointing to. This is how he's describing to them the importance and the need of counting the cost. So, here we go. To, to make these headings clear, let's take them one at a time. Okay? First, under the need to count the cost, Jesus points to a parable, two parables and then an application. The parable which shows us a story of an inability to continue to pay the high cost. Why do would-be disciples need to count the cost. Why do you need to consider the cost? Because here's a reality that Jesus is pointing to. Verses 28 through 30, let's read them. You ready? For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has uh, laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus is 
making clear a reality of it through a parable of an inability to continue to pay the high cost. And this is one of the reasons why he is pointing to the need to count the cost before following him. Listen, you ready? After giving the remarks, the marks, the requirements of true repentance, true faith, true discipleship, true lordship, becoming a Christian, this is what it will look like. This is what is required. Before or after doing that now, Jesus uses a parable to encourage the crowd who is accompanying him to thoroughly, listen, thoroughly consider the costs before following him. He is telling these costs so that these would-be disciples before following him should know that if there's anything less than total commitment, as he's described, they cannot be his disciples. Verse 28 says this. Jesus says, for. Let's stop there. Say, this is going to take a long time if we... Stop there. This is an important word. Listen now. For. This is the connecting word to the requirements that he's just described. Follow me. The connecting word for. Listen, listen, listen. At the beginning of a sentence, it gives us one of two things. It either gives us the reason for what was previously said or it gives us the grounds for what was previously said. Here, it's the reason. Okay, so whenever you see that. So here, the reason, listen, the reason he stopped the crowd, the reason he's given the requirements for true discipleship is so they would sit down and count the cost that he just gave. That's what they should do with this information. That's what he's trying to say. Now, verse 28, look at this. For which one of you desiring to build a tower? Now, keep with me. The Greek word here for tower is pergos. And you know what it refers to? It refers to a watchtower in a personal vineyard. In a vineyard. The same words used when referring to the tower of Siloam. Remember that tower in Luke 13, 4? Now, this kind of tower, listen now, listen. It wasn't built for fun. It was built out of a need. You don't put a watchtower to protect your vineyard just like for fun. You don't build that for fun. You build it out of what? Need. And the idea, listen, listen, the idea we can infer here is that some people in the crowd are not accompanying him just like for fun, for frivolous desires, for popularity, for wealth. Listen, they may feel that they have genuine need of him. But those needs may be food. They may be healing. They may be to come out from Roman oppression, which all of those things, food, healing, governmental success, all they would believe would be coming from the Messiah when he arrived, right? They might have this need. But when people desire to come after him, even in personal need, Jesus doesn't overlook or excuse or change the requirements. He doesn't say, oh, well, look, look at their genuine need and, it, it, he, and then hold back from giving them the truth up front. He doesn't, he doesn't give them a lighter set of requirements. They must make him their God. 
They must make him their God. He must become their Lord. Their need is for true forgiveness of sin. And this is the way you must evangelize. Listen, you must do so with boldness, which means all speech, the truth up front. And when you evangelize the lost, you must not look at the circumstances of the people. And because of the compassion in your heart, while you're sharing the gospel, think that it's love to hold back or leave out some of the conditions of what it means to follow Christ. It's going to require repentance and faith and making Christ Lord in order to be saved. Even when someone is in true need, give them the full picture. It's the only way someone can be saved. Jesus is giving them the full picture. So we move back to the, to the, to the parable. He says, this is a tower. He says, what? He says uh, for which of you desiring to build a tower? Now stay with me. This is not a, a, uh, a tower that would be unseen. This is a tower that would be seen. It would be out in the open. And listen, they would be living in a time and in a place where people would understand this because everyone had a vineyard, and if you didn't have a vineyard, you knew someone who had a vineyard, they were all around you. So Jesus is giving this parable, this rhetorical question in parabolic form, saying something that they would understand. Now listen, listen. He says in verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first, what? Sit down. And count the cost. Notice the order. First, before building the tower, sit down, right? And and this means seriously consider. When he says count the cost, what does that mean? Well, he tells you, look it, just stay with me. Verse 28, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first, there's the order here, first sit down and then count the cost. What does that mean, count the cost? I don't understand that term. Well, it means exactly what he says next. Verse 28, whether he has enough what? What? To complete it. To complete it. What matters is not that a person's able to start a job, but that a person's able to what? Finish the job. Despite all of the benefits of building this tower, despite all of the benefits of following Christ, a wise person sits down and assesses whether they will have enough to finish it. One commentator writes this, a decision for Christ involves reflection, not reaction. How many decisions for Christ today are made by emotional reaction rather than contemplative reflection on the truth? Now listen, stay with me. I love what David Grantham said last week. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Today's churches, we've made it all about feelings. We've made it a feelings man, a feelings-based religion, right? It's, it's content, knowledge, it's truth in a book that changes us. So this is how we're sanctified. This is how we're saved. 2 Timothy 3, 7 tells us. Romans 12, 2. So listen, Let me show you this. The tower, it's got to be of some size when he says this. Why? Listen, because it took the whole of this man's resources to complete just the foundation. This is an expensive tower, right? And when the Greek 
word to finish it is used here. You know what it means? To finish it completely. Completely. So, what does Jesus mean here? Well, it's obvious. Follow with me. Stay with me. The decision to follow him is a great decision. It's the biggest decision that anybody could ever make in their entire lives. It will take your entire life. And in the end, we'll give you eternal life. It may come from a feeling of need, but it will still require what Jesus calls of a true disciple. It will require loving him more than your family. It will require suffering, being loyal to him and enduring suffering. It will require surrendering your possessions. And listen now, despite its benefits, would-be disciples must know what is required and whether they will be able to make it to the end of their lives. Listen, all the way to the end. Still following Christ. That will be the evidence of your true saving faith. Or, listen, whether the cost will become too great. The rejection of family, the sufferings for Christ, the keeping, uh, you know, the keeping up with the word of God and, and obeying it, not keeping up with the world, not accumulating riches, it, it, it all eventually just becomes too much. And you've seen this, haven't you? It's too high of a price. It's too great of a cost to pay to have Christ and his forgiveness. And this is the reality, listen, of so many false disciples. The benefits, they start with the benefits and then they begin to, to fizzle. They begin to feel that true, biblical Christianity is undesirable. It's bad. I don't want that. You know, it's not what I wanted. It's wrong, we even feel like. So they either make up their own version of Christianity or they, they leave Christ altogether. Some form of syncretism or they turn away. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. Look at this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. You know what that means? They once did endure it. They sat under the word and heard it and were convicted by it and followed it and wanted to honor Christ. And eventually it just became tasteless, boring. I don't want the truth. And so they found teachers who will give them the version of Christianity that they want. And they go, but it's really just myths. It's not based on any truth. Right? This is the picture here. So, the premise is that you wouldn't make a rash decision, listen, listen, about something as insignificant as a building. Who would, like, with five bucks in their pocket, decide to build a building in their backyard? You wouldn't do that. How much more should you not be hasty about following Jesus? I mean, this is the biggest decision anyone could ever make. You must know the commitment required. Verses 29 through 30. I'm trying to move fast because we've got to get through this. Verses 29 through 30 says this, look. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. The result of the man not calculating the cost. 
and only being able to build the foundation. Because this tower would be out in the open. And people would walk by, continue to see this unfinished tower, probably growing vines all around it. And they would mock him. They would ridicule him. It would be a, a source of embarrassment, of shame. And, and especially for people listening in the ancient Near East. Right? Culturally, this would be a grievous thing for an individual in a family. And in terms of the spiritual reality, I think there's two forms of shame that, would, that come usually from this. When someone decides hastily to follow Christ, not willing to pay the cost. The first is shame before God. Whether they admit it or not, they spend the rest of their lives running from God. After, you've seen it. After making a decision for Christ too hastily, not being willing to pay the cost anymore, and now they don't even want to enter into a discussion about God. The second form of shame that I think is before other Christians. You experience a shame before other Christians. You enter this journey enthusiastically, but you refuse to pay the high cost that Christ requires. And now they won't even step foot in the church. I see people at the grocery store who, who resemble this kind of decision, Right? And they avoid me. They, they don't want to come back. They don't want to be before Christians. They, they walk in with, with their head down and, and it's a form of hiding. There's shame that comes along with this. But it's as a result of the person's decision not to pay the high cost anymore. Let me tell you, if you would be willing to pay the cost of lordship, Christ would embrace you as his own and save you. So, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued, what? With us. Number two, we've got to move. Secondly, we see Jesus warn against an imprudent and hasty rejection, which will end in defeat. An imprudent and hasty de- rejection, which will end in defeat. Verses 31 through 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now stay with me for this last 10 minutes or so. This is the second rhetorical question Jesus is asking in parabolic form. And then he illustrates this with a slightly different picture and in a slightly different meaning. And we can infer a slightly different reason that Jesus is giving them all of this truth up front. A slightly different danger. Verses 31 through 32. So, Jesus says this. He gives this picture here that it's obvious wisdom of prudently considering, listen, all of the facts before hastily making a decision. And Jesus is here, listen, depicting a king at war. A king who is at war. And he's moving from now from a common situation with the tower to a political situation with a king. And here's what's happening. The king is being invaded. The king is being invaded. He has fewer troops. The king must gather all the facts, deliberate, choose, to either hastily go out and fight 
or surrender to the king and his terms before the fight ever starts, right? So in the first parable, the man is making a voluntary decision. And in the second parable, the decision is forced upon this man. He's got to choose. That's the picture here. And Jesus, in the same way, is stopping the crowd. They didn't ask for this. And he is thrusting his requirements upon them. That's why that second point from weeks ago, Jesus' initiative, very relevant here. Jesus is thrusting this decision upon him. The king with the stronger army at this point is an enemy. Just as God is an enemy of those who are not in Christ. That's the reality of where you stand. So imagine this now. This, you start to unravel this and you start to see clearly these requirements, these terms are thrust upon the would-be disciple by their, uh, a God who, is, who they are at enmity with. And the king has, the, the, the stronger king has clearly high demands. Just as Christ has made these high demands of the would-be disciple. And the weaker king must not make a hasty decision to deny those high requirements. He must not make a decision to deny the demands of the stronger king rather than Accepting the terms. He must not go to war with this stronger king. It would be wise for him to sit, deliberate the high demands, and then through an embassy or an ambassador, secure an agreement of, of what? Peace. I'll accept your terms. I'll accept your requirements. So listen, here's what the meaning is. In the first parable, Christ warns against the hasty decision of accepting his terms. In the second parable, he warns against the hasty decision of denying his terms. To oppose the stronger king and his demands will surely end in death. So the meaning here is that would-be disciples must consider what dec declining Christ's difficult requirements will mean. Count the cost, surrender to his terms, make peace with this far more powerful God through Christ and do not hastily oppose his terms because it will end in death. And listen, this says, this seems not to make any sense. He's giving really high requirements so that they would not reject them, <laughs> right? But here's where we see that Christ making these, giving these terms is a gracious and inviting act. You understand that? He's, he's giving them these terms. He's giving them the terms and advising would-be disciples to contemplate them, to contemplate God's power. Listen now, and before rejecting them or trying to fight against them, it's best that the weaker king know the terms so that he can surrender and not face death. In the first parable, it's a warning about deciding too quickly without knowing the terms. The second parable... It's an invitation to accept the terms. Do you understand this? Although they're high, and experience peace with, with God.
So can I just tell you something evangelistically again? This is why the most loving thing that you can do is tell your neighbor the high terms, the cost, the actual biblical cost of following Christ. It's the most gracious and loving thing you can do and invite them not to reject those terms, but to receive them, to accept them, and to make peace with God. Now let me show you the third, number three here, okay? We're almost done, just a few minutes. Number three, we see an impure and therefore useless faith. An impure and therefore useless faith. Verses 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil nor for the manure or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him what? Here. At first, this may seem like a separate section. Listen, but the connecting word, therefore, which is rightly conveyed in the NASB, shows that this is a final application of what Jesus is saying in the section. And here's what is it's being told. Listen, Jesus is saying, listen, 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 just for a few more minutes, listen. If what was thought to be pure and what was thought to be the real thing and useful later on proves not to be the real thing, it's good for nothing and will be cast out. That's what's being said. This isn't hard to understand. The message is clear. Listen, if because of a hasty decision, not counting the cost, one makes a decision to follow Christ for a while looks like the real thing, yet later proves to not have real, true, genuine, saving faith. It's mixed with this impure, unbiblical motives and expectations of Christ. It will be useless. That faith, that kind of faith can't save you. It will be thrown away. And this clearly points us to the judgment of God's wrath in sending the sinner to hell. Now, none of this is meant to point you to earning your salvation. It's meant to show you the marks of one who truly trusts in Christ and to warn you to, to make it to the end. So listen, verse 34. Let me just explain these for a few minutes. Verse 34, it says this. Salt is good. Now, this is a true and obvious statement. Salt was good. It's pure. And real salt, it was used for farming, refrigeration, preservation, flavor. How many of you all love salt? And even for sacrifices and covenants. Salt was even used for sacrifices and covenants. Now, Jesus is clearly referring to, with the salt, saving faith. Listen, it's good that you would receive his requirements, accept his invitation. Matthew 5 says you're the salt of the world, meaning you who have saving faith. If you have saving faith in Christ, you are representatives of God in the world. That's a good thing. Now listen, in our section He's not warning against becoming salt or becoming a true disciple. He's actually inviting them. But what needs to be warned against is a short-lived, temporary, superficial, false conversion and faith. So Jesus goes on to say this, verse 34. If salt has lost its taste, in Mark's gospel, he says it differently. He says if it's lost its saltiness. Now let me just tell you this and we're done. If you know anything about salt, sodium chloride, you know that it's impossible for it to lose its saltiness and therefore its taste. The elements cannot become inactive, which speaks to a spiritual truth of the perseverance of the saints. If, if one is, it is good that one is a true disciple, accepts Jesus' high cost, genuine saving faith, evidenced by total commitment, 
And that kind of true saving faith cannot be lost. But an impure, false faith can. And it indeed will. Jesus is referring to, in first century Palestine, the salt wasn't pure. It would come from a part of the Dead Sea, an evaporation of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea was mixed with elements, other substances. So when the evaporation caused or created salt, it was made of a mixture of substances. Listen, the mixture of substances, salt, carnalite, and included what's called gypsum. And though these crystals, listen, these crystals looked real. They looked like salt. They looked like the pure thing. But they're not. The sodium could be leached out. And what was left was a crystal of other elements that lacked saltiness and therefore lacked its taste. It would literally, this crystal would be good for absolutely nothing. What do you do with it except just throw it on the ground? Can it doesn't accomplish anything. So, it's interesting here too that that word for saltless has a Hebrew root that means foolish. It's almost similar to the first two parables of this fool, this, this, these foolish decisions. So listen, verse 35, lastly. It says, it's no use for anything, either for the soil or the manure power, it's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This false faith, this useless faith, it will be thrown into judgment. True disciples have counted their costs and they keep their faith no matter what. So, in all of this, Jesus ends this section by saying this. He who, listen, listen. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the common way Jesus chooses to close his teaching. It's an invitation and a warning. It shows how important this section is. It says this. If you got ears, listen. And consider carefully what he has just been saying. Consider carefully what he's just been saying. Jesus wants true disciples. And to become his true disciple, you must give up your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. There's so much in here that we could discuss. We, we could spend far more many hours discussing this, these verses. It took us five weeks to even get through these 10 verses. But I pray, God, that the truth would never leave us. It's okay. We don't have anywhere else to go. We don't need to be anywhere else. We don't need to get on to the next passage until we understand this one. I pray, Lord, that you would warn us to count the cost, to not hastily accept it, to not hastily reject it, so that we would become true disciples with pure, saving, genuine, saving faith. We don't want to be people who look like the real thing, but in the end are good for nothing. We want to be your true disciples. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.